are starting off for another great episode, and I'm very excited for this particular podcast. This is a Public Note. This is on behalf of Public Note, which is a nonprofit organization led by stellar community members working together to support the open and inclusive Stellar Network. And I'm very pleased to have Michael here with Velo Labs. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, Sam, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Very excited about this interview and really looking forward to the conversation we're about to have. Well, great. Look, let's go start right into it. I wanted to just uh, first introduce you to the audience and the Stellar community and uh, allow you to share a little bit about your background, because um, I know that you have quite an extensive history in blockchain. It's not your first foray. No, it's it's not. I wish I could say I spent a lifetime in blockchain, but it's still a fairly new industry. Yeah, I first got involved in blockchain probably back in uh, mid-2012, 2013, just more as a curiosity, um, wanting to learn more about what was going on. Um, and the more I learned, the more you know, the excited I got, the more visionary I saw the, the whole concept of blockchain and digital assets, cryptocurrency, really starting to understand the impact that those things can have on the world, the improvements they can make. Um, and, you know, so I spent probably between 2013 and 2016 you know, just really educating myself and learning about Bitcoin, you know, learning about some of the other projects that were going on. At the time, that was early days of Ripple and things like that, you know, and yeah, come into about 2016 is when I, um, you know, late 2016 is when I really got involved directly uh, with Ripple and uh, started working for Ripple as uh, their first hire in Asia, first feet on the street, if you will, um, in Singapore, co covering Asia Pacific. Wow, wow, wow. And and I know beyond blockchain, you've also have some experience in, you know, non-blockchain, more traditional business as well. Do you mind touching on that just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Look, I've, uh, you know, you're right. And I I've, I have a, a, a fairly extensive background. So I've, I've got, I've had about uh, my career is a little over 20 years. Um, now, uh, so dating myself a little bit, but yeah, I've been, I've been in the industry, in the technology industry for about 20, 22, 23 years now. And yeah, I've always been at the forefront of technology. So I've, I've had fairly extensive stints at companies like IBM, HP Autonomy, Fiserv, you know, so, so large organizations, first uh, part of my career, probably the first 15 years or so of my career was all spent in large technology corporations working with, with some of the cutting edge stuff. So the blockchain era, if you will, uh, reminds me a lot of the dot-com era. I uh, started my career at uh, right, in the, right in the heyday of the dot-com era, so that uh, was, uh, was very exciting. Um, and, then, and, and the industry, the blockchain industry today, has a lot of elements of that dot-com era. So yeah, coming out of those big companies in, and then changing my career into fintech and focusing on things like blockchain payments and uh, mm. digital assets has, uh, you know, it's, it's really been pretty well-rounded, pretty good exposure across the board. And, you know, I, the reason why I ask that is that there's a lot of projects in the blockchain universe. And, you know, a lot of times what you see is you have projects that sound good, but the people that are developing them, working on them, really don't have that balance of experience to know how or if it can work in the real world. And so, you know, I, I just thought it was important to point that out for the audience to, to give some some balance to that. Yeah, yeah. No, it, you know, and Sam, it's a great point. And, and you're right. I couldn't agree more. 
you know, you see new projects uh, come up every day and it's always questionable. Um, you know, it's, it's very important to look at the teams involved with them. It's always questionable when, uh, you know, with people that don't have uh, much experience. I mean, which is why I said it does remind me it's, it's a yet another aspect that reminds me a lot of the dot com era. Right. Uh, you know, during that time, there are a lot of different websites and things that would pop up. And it was really, you know, if you wanted to make a quick buck, you put dot com behind anything. That was a get rich quick scheme of that uh, of that time. And I see a lot of similarities with digital assets, uh, you know, cryptocurrency and the projects and a lot of these projects that pop up that really, if you know, really, if you look beneath the service, the teams aren't qualified, they're inexperienced, there's no real use case, it's just bound for failure. So yeah, you're, you're right, there are a lot of projects like that. And I think it is important to have uh, people that really have the real world experience and the um, and the and the business acumen to take things forward in, in the uh, right constructive way. Couldn't have said it better. So while we're on the topic of knowing what you're doing, and uh, and having experience, I know that Velo is not walking in here soft-footed either. You guys got some pretty uh, heavy hitters, founding members, investment partners that are behind the creation of this project and protocol. So if you don't mind, if we can get some background on some of these heavy hitters, as I said, that are in the Southeast Asia community that you guys are walking in with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I mean, I think this is, you know, this is the kind of stuff that you really want to look at in these projects is, you know, who who is involved and who is backing them, who's driving the cause for Velo Labs is blessed in, in a lot of ways to have our chairman, Chachaval Jaravanan Kunchat. You know, so Chat is, he's, he's very well respected, very well known serial entrepreneur, investor, and just a huge uh, business presence in um, the Southeast Asia business landscape. I think he's a little bit, and, and you know, and as well on, on the global front. So, you know, he is part of the uh, CP group. He is um, one of the senior members of that family. Uh, so CP group happens to be one of the largest conglomerates in the world. Um, they're the wow. fourth largest conglomerate in all of Asia. Um, not So not just South Asia, but now stepping into the broader region, all of Asia, you know, massive holdings. They operate in over 20 countries, $63 billion a year in revenue alone. They're also, yeah, exactly. Man. They're, they're big. They're big. So yeah, wow. so like you wow. said, not soft footed. Yes. No, that's really exciting. And and then I read somewhere about uh, a, seven, a connection with 7-Elevens. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's right. So if you visit Thailand and you walk into a 7-Eleven, that's all CP group. And that's just one part of it. So they've got thousands of stores across Thailand. Um, so the entire 7-Eleven chain in Thailand is all owned by, by CP group. And they work very closely with the larger uh, 7-Eleven, uh, 7-and-I holdings. You know, that's also um, got some involvement in, in this as well. So it's not just Kun Chai, but I think that's a big presence. And I mean, little known fact for folks that, you know, that are less familiar with Asia and more familiar with the West, Chat is also the owner of Fortune Magazine. So he, um, wow. he acquired Fortune Magazine a couple of years ago. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. And, you know, I, I remember reading about the, on the 7-Elevens, for everyone that's listening into this, the 7-Elevens in Southeast Asia is not the same as the 7-Elevens in the U.S. It's much nicer. It's it's incredible. I, I, people are very excited about their 7-Elevens over there. It's, it's another creation. It's a lot, a lot better, I think, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's it's a little different. And, 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 and since you touched on that, uh, you know, there, there are reasons. There, there are reasons that it's a little different because in the U.S., and, you know, I grew up in the U.S., lived there for the majority of my life. 
before I came to Asia. And the 7-Elevens um, in, in Southeast Asia and, and, you know, across Asia for that matter are quite different, but they provide different services to, you know, to the communities that they're in. Um, so like in the U.S. where, you know, convenience store, it's just like your little, you know, 7-Elevens, like your little corner store, and there might be one every, you know, every few miles. Here in Southeast Asia, you can pretty much run into a 7-Eleven. So every three or four blocks, you're probably going to run across a 7-Eleven, but they provide a deeper ambit of services. So you, you get a much broader scope of groceries and things um, than you probably would find in 7-Elevens in the U.S. Yeah. You'll even have electronics, small electronics and things, financial services. So a lot of these 7-Elevens um, in different parts of Southeast Asia um, and Asia as a whole. I mean, if you go to a 7-Eleven in, in Japan, right, um, which is a, you know, a little bit north of Southeast Asia, but if you go to 7-Elevens in Japan, you've got entire banking services that, that are there. So, yeah, it is wow. a different experience. And, and you know, and, and this kind of ties perfectly into this next question that I have. When people are looking at these projects, right, like I said, you got to know the team. You got to know the people behind it. But it's also important to understand the, the culture and the environment, and, you know, so that we can understand the real, the real need for the protocol. And so I was hoping that you could spend a couple minutes here just helping the, the listeners understand the Southeast Asia market a bit. So that way they can grasp what Velo is trying to solve. Sure. You know, it's a varied market, right? There's, there are first world countries, there are developing countries, there's big populations, and there's just a, a lot of variance in different, um, between the different countries. I mean, yeah, Singapore is is very modern. It's uh, it's very developed. I, I would even say you know that Singapore, by comparison to a lot of large cities in the U.S., is far more advanced. Um, but then you know that's Singapore. But if you just if you go over if you go into over into some other countries in Southeast Asia, um, you know you can see that the infrastructure isn't quite as developed. You can see that improvements are being made, that investments are being made, but there's still a long way to go. You can see different levels of access to key services. So you can see, you know, um, but, you know, Singapore, there's ATMs everywhere. There's access to cash. Everything is is connected and wired. You know, everything's on the Internet. But if you were to step into, you know, into some of these developing countries like, you know, Vietnam um, and Indonesia, you know, in, in the larger cities, you'll see those things. But again, not everybody lives in, in the large cities and even in, in the large cities there can be a lot of disparity between what, uh, you know, what's accessible to some and what's accessible to others. And so this is where we get into things like financial inclusion. A lot of the countries, you know, have different levels of banking. So I think it's important for people to understand. In the U.S., it's very common to have a bank account, right? I mean, these days you, right. you have to. That's where your direct deposit for your job and, and, and things go. That's where your tax returns go. So, in Asia, in most of Asia, especially Southeast Asia, cash is king, um, and the reason that cash it remains king through a lot of these, uh, through a lot of the region, is just plain and simple that um, you know there there are a lot of underprivileged populations who do not have access to you know to banks, and they, even if they happen to be in a in a larger town, and and the reason being is that they literally don't have the income levels to sustain a bank account, right? Uh, banks can't afford to just open bank accounts, open branches in, you know, in, in every village, hold bank accounts for every person. 
when those bank accounts um, aren't utilized, don't have funds in them. So it, it creates a, a big problem. And this is something that you see you know, across uh, Southeast Asia and, and you know, the entire of Asia for that matter. Um, and you'll see the same things in, in Central Europe and, thing, and as well. So it, it's not completely confined to, to Southeast Asia, but it's very obvious. It's, it's, you, know, you can definitely see it. And I know that in looking at the map, they're all close to each other. So you're crossing borders frequently just to, to do regular commerce. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, COVID, you know, the COVID situation has, has um, you know, put a little bit of a, a kibosh on, on travel for, you know, for everyone. But yeah, yeah, in a general sense, I mean... Doing business here is, is very international. People travel be- between countries here, you know, frequently. Um, Pre-COVID and you know, and knock on wood, um, post-COVID, we'll get back to you know having that ability. I mean, I can use myself as an example. I used to, you know, doing my job. I used to fly, uh, you know, fly all across Asia because you, you have to. The economies are so interconnected. It's quite a bit different in North America or the U.S. for that matter, where you. Know, you wouldn't really need to do your job. Like I were doing sales in California, spend most of my time in California driving up and down the state. And maybe I might take a flight here and there. Here, you know, just everyday business is, um, is, is getting on an airplane. Easily, I can tell you on average, a year in, in Southeast Asia, you know, I'll, I'll easily fly 200,000 miles with, without even trying. That definitely sets the stage. Going on to the remittance market, because I know that <laughs> this is a, a big area for you guys. Why is there such a big need for a remittance solution in Southeast Asia? Yeah, well, you know, look, there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of it goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago with, you know, with the fact that there's a, a lot of different levels of access to, you know, to the financial services ecosystem. And that's part of the problem, right? There's a large, very large populations of unbanked and underbanked. So that's one. We need to give people better access uh, to financial services. The remittance is a big part of that because, as I, as we were just talking about, people travel across the region, and a lot of the the population that I'm talking about that's unbanked and underbanked, they work in domestic services type jobs. Um, you know, okay. so you'll see them coming from you know coming from a lot of these different countries into the more developed countries. So you see people from Philippines coming into you know, Singapore to provide domestic services. You'll see people from Indonesia you know, doing the same thing. But all of those people providing those labor-intensive jobs, domestic services jobs, hospitality. So you know, a lot of the people that you see working in hotels are actually you know, foreigners in, in that country where they've come provide those, you know, those service jobs. Now, all of these people need to send money back to their families. The whole premise of why they're going to other countries is to improve the state of their lives. And as they earn income, they need to be able to remit it back to their families. And this is where the, the remittance, you know, good remittance solutions, you know, really come into play. You know, if you take a look at what, what the remittance landscape um, has looked like over the years, yeah, it, it's surprisingly as much of, an, of a global need as there is to get money around the world. The rails that the world have been working on are, are, you know, are over 45 years old now, right? And that's, and that's a SWIFT network, right? And there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges with that. Um, you know, the SWIFT network isn't inherently bad, but it was built for a different purpose than um, retail remittance. It was built to enable correspondent banking, very large transactions between you know, large institutions globally. 
that you know the correspondent banking system was not designed for you and me. It wasn't designed for small banks. It wasn't designed for SMEs, and it certainly wasn't designed for the unbanked and, and underbanked. And this is one of the big reasons that there's a need for these kind of solutions where we have interconnected economies, but the monetary flows between those economies aren't as interconnected as the people are. Very insightful, very insightful information. Like I said, you're, you're really creating a, a very vivid photo for us of, of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, I'll give you another example of this. If you're, if you're trying to remit funds, do you realize that, you know, a lot of, well, a lot of people don't realize this, that in, that in most cases, the money that you give to, to a Western Union or MoneyGram or even to your bank, and if you want to send that to another country, it's going to touch three to five different financial institutions before it actually lands where it's supposed to go. And if there's any error in those payments, you're going to end up with, you know, with something that you thought might be available within a couple of hours. You're going to end up in a situation where there's any errors in those transactions that those financial institutions then have to resolve for. It's going to add days it, and at times, you know, weeks. It can, it can actually add weeks the actual fund being available. Yeah. That's painful. That's painful. And it makes no sense to think that when you have somebody that's, like you said, they're traveling across to maybe Singapore to do domestic labor and they've got kids, elderly folks that are depending on them. And you're telling them that they got to have a delay because of paperwork for two, three weeks when there's food and, and lights to get put on. It's That is uh, definitely something that needs to be tackled. And so, you know, in, in talking about that, let's start going into the protocol. So for the listeners that may be first time, first timers, first, this is the first introduction, help them to understand how does blockchain distributed ledger technology in general tackle these hurdles? Because we talked about SWIFT, right? SWIFT sure. is made 45 years ago. So how do we get into the future? Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, so picking up from from SWIFT, 45-year-old system, you know, prior to that, it was a telegram, right? So, <laughs> you know, so, you so know, we went from a telegram to a 45-year-old system. It's been 45 years since we've done it. This is embarrassing, yeah. actually. All right, go ahead. It is. I mean, it, it, it. I mean, you know, we can laugh about it, but it has real implications, yeah. right? And 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 we just talk about a lot of those things. And this is where I think DLT, um, you know, really comes into play, you know, because if you look at what happens today, you know, what causes the delays I was talking about, you know, and it's because the institutions. If you look at what the messaging systems look like, you know, you can only have a certain amount of characters in any in any message. I mean. This is moving money by SMS, if you will, right? I mean, just think about that. You can only have a certain number of characters in this message to try to get a transaction done. If, uh, you know, if somebody makes a typo in, in an account number, that's only found once the message has been sent and the institution receiving the message says, oh, wait, the name on this message doesn't match the account number in, in the message. So we can't process this. We've got to send a message back to tell them that they got it wrong. Go correct, you know, get it, you know, um, you know, message us again once you've got it correct, right? And so you start to enter into all these delays. And this is where DLT comes in and is able to provide the underlying technology that starts to improve on, on a lot of these situations where we can now make these things atomic, if you will, where messages and settlements can really start to happen at, at the same time instantaneously. Because you remove a lot of the friction, a lot of the uh, operational friction,
frictions from this because you can pre-validate information for the messages actually sent. Um, all parties involved in the transaction using DLT can see what that transaction is at any stage of the transaction. So it removes a lot of the possibility of, of those type of errors happening. It removes um, the need to do fraud investigations mm-hmm. and, and things like that to a large part because the transactions are immutable. They can't be manipulated. So you have a certainty of the state of any transaction. If something is wrong in the transaction, everyone involved can see that. If the transaction has completed, everyone involved in the transaction can see that. So there is no need to have to go back and forth and have days of delay, hours of delay introduced as people validate and verify information. All of that becomes really automated and instantaneous using DLT technology. I mean, you got me really, really excited. So I understand the, the culture. I understand what's going on over there in the Southeast Asia. All right. I've got a, a, an understanding of some of the problems, okay? Now, I want to make sure that these workers that depend on this money are able to f- quickly, efficiently, cheaply provide for their families. And this is why Velo Protocol is coming into existence. So now, let's walk us through at a high level to understand what Velo is and how it will work in a real world scenario. Sure. Uh, you know, I guess uh, let me try to break this down as simply as, as I can, Please. Um, you know, for <laughs> folks. Um, you know, there are really three major components to Velo and how it works. And so I'll start with the first one. The first one is our network, is our, a network of trusted partners. So these are businesses, banks, and other types of financial institutions Um, that become trusted partners by completing a series of qualification audits, anti-money laundering, know your customer procedures. So basically a lot of the things that that a lot of financial institutions would be familiar with today, we do with any institution that wants to join the Velo network. And the reason that we do it is so that all any other trusted partner that becomes involved in the network um, has the confidence and the certainty that um, you know, that the other parties they might be transacting with across this network are actually viable and verified companies and institutions. And that, that's, that becomes really important as well, because you want to be able to have some trust and certainty with the different types of players that you might be transacting with. The second aspect of our uh, component of Velo is, of course, the Velo token which are issued on Stellar. All right, all right. That adds a lot of uh, a lot of the technical functionality and capabilities of the Velo tokens. Then we also have the Velo protocol, which is a, a blockchain-based, obviously, financial protocol that enables the issuance of digital credits that are paid to any fiat currency. So this is, you know, again, getting to how the Velo token works and having the digital credit paid to any fiat currency. The Velo protocol also powers the interaction between the, you know, the in the federated credit exchange network. So all the transactions between the trusted partners are powered by the Velo protocol. So, you know, those are really the three uh, major components in Velo. It's the network, the trusted partner network, Velo tokens, and the Velo protocol. At a use case level, you know, typical use case to give you some example, the Velo protocol starts with the issuance of digital credits, which are collateralized by the Velo tokens. And then uh, the smart, there's smart contracts that link the Velo token to the digital credits and actual fiat deposits that back up those Velo tokens. So that's one thing I would touch on too, 
is that the Velo token has to be collateralized yeah. by actual okay. uh, fiat deposits, okay. right? And so once you do that, you get Velo tokens that then can be used as digital credits for these transactions. And then so the business partner transact using those digital credits that are all backed by Velo tokens and the fiat deposits um, that back those tokens up. Okay. All right. So the MTO, the MTOs themselves are collecting that capital from the, from the customer and that's being used as collateral, correct? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, you know, the MTOs, banks, you know, businesses, if they wanted to uh, leverage Velo, like say they joined the Velo network, they would collateralize, um, you know, they would put, uh, put on deposit some amount of a fiat currency, whatever that might be. So let's say, you know, let's say it was 100,000 USD, they would be issued the equivalent token. So 100,000 USD pegged to the, with the Velo token. So say 100,000 Velo USD okay. you know, would be issued to them. Um, and then that 100,000, um, that actual fiat deposit would be held as collateral against those tokens. And then the institutions can utilize, you know, can utilize those tokens to transact and, and trade with each other. Okay. So now for the average consumer visiting these stores, small MTOs, will they have any idea that they're using blockchain or for them, would it just be a normal transaction? Yeah. So no, for them, it, you know, so it's, it's completely transparent. Um, it's, it's nothing that an end user is, is going to be aware of directly. But what I would say, you know, they'll be aware that the transactions got fast. <laughs> the important part. Um, yeah. you know, that, uh, you know, that things got to where they need it to be. So they will be aware that their life improved, but they're not going to know. And, they don't, and, you know, in a large, you know, to a large extent, they don't need to know that it's blockchain. You know, and I doubt they care. Right. Um, at the end of the day, they just they want their problem solved, just like you know, just like any of us. I mean, and it works the same way for SMEs and corporates and the financial institutions that will leverage Velo as well. They'll know because they're, you know they've they've obviously integrated their systems with Velo and leveraging the Velo protocol. But at the end of the day, it's transparent. It's just like the internet. It's just what makes things happen. But you don't actually see the internet. No, I think that's I think that's a great point. I, I've always believed that for, for those of us that are in the blockchain crypto community, what we really want is to get to a point where the average person has no idea what they're using. You know, like, like you said, the same way, you know, when someone sends an email, they're not thinking I'm using the SMTP protocol. <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly, exactly. All they know is I need to get Johnny these spreadsheets by eight o'clock and it's there. That's all they care about. So I, I exactly. think that's great. Stellar has a great, an app that's, that's coming out. They've been talking about uh, Vibrant and I'm excited about it. And, and mainly because in many ways, I believe that the average consumer is not going to have any idea, nor do I really care if they know that they're using Stellar to, to transfer the money. So that's great. I'm glad to see you guys around that same ease of use. While on the subject of Stellar, as this is for the Stellar community, I want to ask you a couple of things. So you know, obviously, you mentioned earlier that you did have a history with Ripple, as well as some other blockchain-related companies. And so I would assume that there, there was a lot of discussion as far as which protocol to do settlement on. Can you share um, why Stellar out of all the options that are out there? Yes, yes, uh, yeah, definitely. It's pretty well known that, uh, you know, that Stellar's founder, you know, Jed, Jed Matog, also found at Ripple, and he's played key roles in the design and development of, of both Ripple and Stellar. So there's definitely certainty, you know, similarities between the platforms. Both platforms boast the ability to process thousands of, of transactions per second and can support scalability. 
that, that real world use cases, uh, especially in payments, require. But in my opinion, I you know I believe Stellar has several advantages. You know, for one, Stellar is open source, right, and it's interoperable. Um, so so that already you know becomes very powerful for organizations like you know like Velo Labs um, with what we're wanting to do in the industry. The open source nature of Stellar just it provides for a more inclusive community, you know, which I think really leads to better outcomes in areas like uh, discoverability, maintainability, extensibility adoption, and at the end of the day, innovation and quality. Wow. Right? And then those are things that, that the more proprietary a solution it is, uh, the more of those things I think you sacrifice. As well, I think, you know, second advantage is that Stellar enables us to conduct a huge number of transactions at uh, very minimal cost. The fees come out to about a dollar for about 100,000 transactions. Wow. So, I mean, you know, that's a huge benefit, right? That, that's a lot of savings. Um, so as a Velo ecosystem expands to serve higher scale of businesses, you know, more transactions, more utilization, you know, Stellar really allows us to easily scale to that demand and accommodate, you know, mass adoption of services that are needed. Third advantage to Stellar, you know, honestly, is, you know, that it supports the issuance of tokens where Ripple really doesn't outside, you know, it, you know, it, it, it just works in its own native token XRP. But without that functionality in Stellar, we wouldn't be able to issue Velo tokens, you know, to support the Velo protocol. So that's that's a major one. Wow. Another advantage here that I would see is that Stellar enjoys a really strong ecosystem of partners and in, in Stellar terms, anchors, who provide access to many corridors for cross-border payments. Leveraging this ecosystem can help cut operational costs of holding pre-funded accounts across the world. If I were to compare to some of the things that companies like Ripple are doing, um, you know, they, it, it addresses the issue to an extent, but it also requires that um, you transact in XRP, right? There's, if you're using Ripple ODL, you, you know, there's no variety of assets where Stellar allows us to be able to do that, can transact really interoperably between any type of fiat or digital asset for that matter, right? We can peg all these different types of assets to the Velo token, and that's just not possible with the Ripple blockchain right now. And, and so, you know, that's a huge advantage for us with Stellar. And finally, you know, Stellar really has the same focus that Velo Labs did in, in starting this with really wanting to lower the barriers of entry for people around the world, the unbanked and the underbanked populations. And that was very important to Velo Labs is, you know, anyone that they were partnering with for, you know, for core technology, they wanted to have that, you know, that same alignment, that same vision of the world. And so I think, you know, that was really um, very important to us. And honestly, rounding this out, in, in my view, the ethos and the ecosystem of Stellar are extremely strong. That coupled with the advantages of uh, the technical advantages of the Stellar platform and the fact that Stellar's is relatively inexpensive to boot. Uh, you know, it just provides a clear lead versus many other platforms in the space. It, I mean, man, you you really covered a lot of ground there, and I and I appreciate that. Stellar is is exciting to a lot of us for all those reasons. And you know, uh, you know, we got to chat a little bit before we we started recording. As an entrepreneur myself, I've seen firsthand the the hurdles of the cost to try to start up businesses on your on your own. And so it's great for the audience to hear that Stellar is great for the, if you're a small 
one man show, one woman show business all the way up to entities like yourself. So you really hit on a lot of great things. So we appreciate that. I know the Stella family does. In your white paper, I, I was reading and it mentioned that the, the Velo token itself is issued on Stellar for settlement and clearance. But then the, the Velo itself is a set of smart contracts used to issue credits linked to fiat deposits backed by the Velo tokens on Evernet um, or Evernet. Uh, can you break down or explain a little bit how that relationship works for the audience? The Velo tokens are assets, like you said, that, yeah, that we issue on Stellar. Um, where we've developed a smart contract capability called EveryNet to work uh, seamlessly with the Stellar protocol. So Velo Labs is using a, a cross-chain protocol called Warp to bridge the Stellar-based uh, Velo tokens and EveryNet. So that's how we're going cross-chain um, between the, the smart contract um, in EveryNet and Stellar protocol. So when a smart contract function is needed, yeah, the relevant Stellar-based um, Velo tokens are locked in a custodian uh, multi-signature address. And then the Evernet tokens corresponding to those Stellar-based tokens are then minted. Okay. And once the relevant smart contracts execute it, then the Evernet tokens are automatically burned and the original Stellar-based tokens are unlocked. Little bit technical there, probably about uh, the extent of, of, of my technical capabilities of explaining it. So hopefully I didn't lose anybody in that. No, no, that's that's good. That's good because um, I was trying to to understand that, and and, and that gives us a, a good a good level of it. So you know, earlier you were mentioning that the tokens, the Velo tokens, are guaranteed, and we talked about collateral. There are two innovations that I caught as well in reading through that your team developed, and so there's the digital credit insurance and digital reserve system. Could you mm -hmm. briefly explain those concepts for us as well and how they work? Sure. Uh, so first of all, yeah, the tokens are guaranteed. And look, just uh, to, to explain like the digital credit issuance and digital reserve system, um, your digital credit issuance system is part of the Velo protocol that issues digital credit based on the total value of the Velo tokens staked as collateral. So for digital credits to be issued, two conditions have to be met. First, uh, the issuer has to uh, be a trusted partner. So again, you know, they have to, you know, they have to have gone uh, through our verification process to become part of the Velo, uh, the Velo network and a trusted partner on the Velo network. Okay. Second, the issuer must obtain and stake Velo tokens to the Velo reserve pool. They have to put up a form of capital in order to get the Velo tokens into the reserve pool, right? So the, you know, that, that guarantees, that helps to guarantee the tokens. After staking the Velo tokens to the, uh, to the Velo reserve pool, the trusted partner receives uh, digital credits that are tied one-to-one -one with the fiat currency of their choice, right? So whatever the fiat is that they've put up, um, and then, you know, and as well in time, that could also be you know, that could be digital assets as well. There's there's no, you know, and it can be exotic currency, so not necessarily fiat. Okay. But any traditional currency, digital asset, peg one-to-one, -one, whatever they put up as collateral is then put into the Velo Reserve Pool to back those digital credits. And so that's how the issuance works. Now, the reserve system really consists of three main elements. The first is a collateral pool where trusted partners deposit their Velo tokens to receive corresponding digital credits. And secondly, a reserve pool where the reserve Velo tokens are stored. And third, a balancing mechanism to maintain a one-to-one -one price ratio 
between digital credits and the relevant currency that they represent. Um, so basically, the digital reserve system works to achieve a one-to-one price ratio between the issued digital credits and their corresponding currency by automatically adding or removing tokens to or from a trusted partner's collateral pool as the price of Velo tokens fluctuates on the open market. Okay. Let me ask you a straightforward question, right, for the audience. What happens if the money transfer fails? Can the money transfer fail? Like, what happens in that scenario? Yeah, look, um, you know, I would say it's Im- it's improbable. But, okay. you know, in, in, you know in, in this world, we've... Even when things are improbable or are or, or viewed as even impossible, um, you know, Murphy's Law, right? It can always happen. <laughs> right. So I've learned not to say impossible. The, mo- the furthest I'll go with anything is improbable. But if that did happen, if a money transfer failed, either the failure occurs at the deposit level, the, you know, the, the currency deposit level, or at the digital credit level. If the failure happens at uh, a currency deposit level, uh, then, you know, the best way to look at this is, is as a simple default. Um, and in such a case, the Velo, t- you know, Velo tokens serve as collateral and protect that trusted partner, right? So there's no loss incurred if that happened. If the transfer were to fail at a digital credit level, it, this, you know, that really gets to be a more of a technical issue okay. um, where that type of failure is likely to stem from either a trusted partner's account balance was too low and, you know, and so the transfer failed. So, for instance, if the partner tried to send $100 worth of digital credits, but they only have $5 worth of digital credits in their wallet, you know, then, you know, the transaction it will fail. You know, it won't pass verification and, and, and wouldn't be processed in the first place. Okay. So, you know, that would be one, one way that, that that could happen. And, you know, that's fairly obvious, right? It, 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 you don't have enough money to do the transaction. You don't have enough credit do the transaction, then the transaction can't be allowed. So in that way, it might fail. But the second I could see here, you know, if a trusted partner, say, has $100 worth of digital credits in their wallet, and then, um, you know, they sign two separate transactions worth $90, and both transactions may initially, you know, be issued. And, And again, I think this is very improbable just because of how DLT works and uh, the speed at which these transactions are processed, it, it's very improbable that, that that could happen. But let's say, for instance, that they did sign two separate transactions worth $90 when they only had $100 of digital credit, then the system will check each transaction against the trusted partner's account balance. And the first $90 transaction would be validated and the trusted partner's account balance would be deducted. The second $90 transaction would then fail. Okay. to be validated because by that point, the trusted partner would only have $10 left in their account, right? So that would be the classic double spend um, you know, type issue. But the, you know, the way that the protocol and distributed ledger works, again, something that's highly improbable to occur. No, that's good. And I appreciate you taking the time to answer that. Because, you know, like I said, we have a lot of people in the community not familiar. Some of those folks are, are tuning in right now that have no idea what DLT blockchain is. And so these are all very basic questions that I'm sure they want to hear. And I appreciate you going through the exercise. With yeah, you know, and, and look, it's, they're important. They're important questions. Because like I said, while that double while that double spin scenario is improbable to, to ever occur in Velo and, and because, of, you know, because of the way that DLT works and the, and the settlement times, and we're talking seconds here, right. right? But that double spin problem is a real world thing. That can happen 
with more manual based ledger systems and messaging systems like Swift and, and, and things like that. This and that double spend is a, is a lot of times it, you know, how fraud can be committed as well. But like I said, and I won't say impossible because that's just not real in today's world. Um, but very improbable. And I think that's the been one of the big benefits of uh, technologies like DLT. And you guys have a system in place, which is which is important. An- another question that came to mind as we were talking, am I correct in looking at Velo as just a stable coin? Is that fair? Or am I wrong on that? I would say I would say that you're wrong on that, but I'll qualify that, right? Because I think it's very easy, you know, look today, you know, when, when people look at blockchain and, and digital assets, it can be really confusing, right? There's a lot of different things that happen. And so I don't think it's, while it's not accurate, I don't think it's wrong to say, you know, for you to be thinking of it as a stable coin, because we are talking about it being pegged and guaranteed by traditional currencies or other types of assets. And that's the definition of what most people would, would generally accept as a stable coin, right, right? right? That's how you describe Tether, right? Tether is supposed to have one USD to every you know, Tether issued. So absolutely, I could see where, you know, where the conclusion would be drawn at, oh, it's a stable coin. But let me qualify why it's different than a stable coin. Um, and so I would say it's not simply a, a stable coin. It, it, it moves beyond a stable coin you know, to be a very unique asset in its own right. Um, you know, the Velo token can actually fluctuate on the open market. Yeah. So while it's collateralized by deposits of traditional currency um, to create the digital credit, the token itself can fluctuate on the open market. Interesting. Um, one of the Velo token's unique traits is its role as a, as a bridge asset, if you will. So Velo tokens link the values of a number of different traditional assets to those corresponding digital credits we were talking about earlier. So in that way, Velo tokens actually serve as a vehicle to transfer liquidity and value into the Velo network. So as the Velo network starts to uh, accept more types of assets as collateral, right? Mm-hmm. So as more, you know, and that, you know, and when I say more types of assets, like I said, that, that there's a, a very broad range. I don't think you know, I wouldn't put any limit on on the types of um, assets that could be put up as collateral. Could be you know fiat currencies, traditional currencies, gold, silver. You know basically anything that you know any asset of value could be you know could conceivably be used as collateral to issue those digital credits. Um, the Velo token bridges the gap between all those different types of asset types, mm-hmm. guarantees the value and liquidity of the digital credits on the Velo network and acts as a Velo ecosystem's universal collateral. Wow. So does that oh, help yeah. a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I stand corrected, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, it's definitely more than a stable coin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we'll, we'll have to see if we can't market a new uh, coin definition. Right. But yeah, no, that's one of the things that I think is really compelling around, you know, the Velo Labs project is, is that it really starts to, you know, to move beyond you know, a single asset class or, you know, a, a single form of value and starts to unite all of these different types of, of assets into one ecosystem. You know, I think that's powerful. So, yeah, absolutely. So uh, what comes to mind now, as you talk about that is you mentioned it, it can fluctuate on the open market. So is there a, a built-in utility plan for the token within the ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. Look, the primary utility of the Velo tokens is that they must be purchased or otherwise obtained and then put forward as collateral for oh. you know for the trusted partners to issue digital credits pegged on, on any of those assets. 
that and that way the Velo token becomes very central to the Velo ecosystem. So to be a participating member in Velo, you have to have a Velo token. That's that's right. You have to have a Velo token. Otherwise, there's there's no reason for you to be you know to be a trusted you know to trust a partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very very important. Very important. It really becomes crucial to how these different types of entities interact with each other. So I know that we've focused on cross-border remittance, and as we're talking about the Velo token, are there other use cases, plans for the Velo token? Yeah, you know, so there are a lot of things that are going on. Payments lies at the core of that. While the current target market, um, you know, we're talking about remittances, you know, we're looking at SME services, corporate services, and things like that. You know, there's there's a number of different um, applications and use cases that can be put forth in the financial uh, ecosystem, especially in terms of payment and transfers of value. So, you know, you've got SME payments, corporate payments, like I said, um, you know, you could even have, you can even in time have, uh, you know, have trade finance use cases applied to this. So yeah, there, there's a number of things that, that we're looking at and we've got going on. So I would say in terms of use cases, sky's the limit. Okay. I've definitely expanded my view on Velo here, and I'm sure a lot of the audience members have as well. So going back here, you know, I know that having key partners is important for gaining adoption, right? Coming into it, I know that as far as the board members, but I was wondering if any clues or insights that you can share with us of some partners that Velo has secured so far. Sure. I'll share what I can. I mean, you know, I don't want to break anybody's confidence. It's just me, or, it's just uh, me and you talking here. Mike, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talking, talking with the whole world listening. Uh, yeah, let me share a few things. So, you know, I, you know there's, and, and a lot of these things have been in the press, but you know, just to recap some of these things. So right now we've got companies like Lightnet, you know, which is, it's a Singapore uh, headquartered fintech uh, company dedicated to, uh, you know, to improving um, the lives of the unbanked and the underbanked. So they're really a very powerful partner for Velo Labs in providing these remittance, uh, the remittance platform. And as they develop their remittance network and ecosystem, helping to solve that problem of the unbanked and underbanked and giving you know, more accessibility and, and more reach in cross-border payments. Um, so, you know, Lightnet is really Velo Labs' first trusted partner, very close with Velo Labs. Oh, and, and, um, real, and, quick, really and real quick, shout out to Mike Kennedy, by the way. I know he's listening. Shout out to Mike Kennedy. Oh, yeah, I, I, that's great. I'm glad Mike is is tuned in. Um, <laughs> hopefully I'm impressing him with some of these answers. <laughs> <laughs> Hit the like button, Mike, please. <laughs> you know, that's Lightnet. And that's really, uh, you know, the first partner that that's putting the, the Velo protocol into a production use case. But we also have others that you know that are developing. So we've got a partnership with Seven Bank in Japan, and this is one of the partnerships that really excites me. Seven Bank is one of the more innovative banks in Japan, and and like I was saying, if you walk into a Seven Eleven in Japan, mm-hmm. right, you can you have full banking services right there in, in that convenience store. So just as quickly as you can grab some of your daily necessities, you can be withdrawing cash, you can be depositing cash. You could even be um, you know, purchasing goods and things like that through bank account in, in 7-Elevens in Japan. So I, you know, I think looking at what um, what Seven Bank does is, you know, is also very visionary with how those things, you know, and especially working with the Velo protocol, um, those type of use cases can be extended across all of Asia, Southeast Asia, and knock on wood um, globally in time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And to share, you know, we've got band protocol, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with band at all. 
Um, you know, but Band is a, a cross-chain data oracle platform that aggregates and connects real-world data and APIs to smart contracts. Right. So I, yeah, I'm looking for this to be a very powerful partnership for the Velo protocol. You know, what Band is doing with us, um, Band is bringing a real-time foreign exchange data oracles to, to support the Velo protocol. Mm. Um, you know, so again, you know, having that partner provide that type of service on, on the Velo network really provides a, a very powerful offering. So I think that's going to be you know, great as we move forward. And you know, obviously, we've got Stellar in, in, in there. And so I think anybody listening Ooh. to this podcast doesn't need to be introduced to Stellar. We've got, we've got a few more. So I'll just run through them. We've got Siba Bank. Um, so that's a crypto bank out of Sweden that's expanding internationally. So we're, you know, we're, we're closely partnered with SIBA. We've got UniPresident, um, which is another very large Asian conglomerate. So, you know, again, multi-billion dollar conglomerate that also happens to own a 7-Eleven franchise in Taiwan. So if you're ever in Taiwan, you step into a 7-Eleven, you're doing business with UniPresident. We have UOB Venture Management. So UOB Venture Management is the venture arm of one of the largest um, Southeast Asian banks, uh, United Overseas Bank, UOB. Um, so that's a very important relationship, a very important uh, partner for us as well. We're partnered with Kyber Network, um, partnered with Hashkey, and you mentioned Mike Kennedy, um, you know, Mike Kennedy a few minutes ago. So, you know, we're, we're definitely, we're partnered, we're tied up very closely with Interstellar, very close relationship uh, with them. As a matter of fact, I know our CEO and Mike Kennedy speak on a very regular basis. Awesome. Right. And then we also have Signum Capital. So that's that's just a few, you know, um, and, and, and there there are more in the works. And like I said, some of them I can't talk about right now. But, um, you know, I would say, you know, keep an eye out you know, for press releases and things because there are some really exciting things that will be coming out here very quickly. Please. And, and, and definitely make sure to hit me up. I'm excited. I'm going to be following you guys really, really, really close. So, I mean, we covered a lot today. I've kept you here for a while. You know, just to round some things off, I know that there was was one question I, I wanted to chat about as well. We touched on it earlier is I know regulation, you know, you have, a, I know you, gosh, you guys have a lot of, of major partners already jumping on board. So I'm curious, how has that experience been in dealing with regulations? I know here in the States, we were fortunate. We just got an announcement that 48 state regulators agreed to a single set of supervisory rules to reduce compliance mm-hmm. costs. How has that experience been for you guys? Because there's a lot of things that seem to be in the pipeline, but you know, without regulations that's friendly, it's hard to put them into action. I'll answer from you know from my experience in industry in in general, right? And like I said, you know, this isn't my first uh, trip around the block. You know, regulators are important. I, for one, working in this industry, you know, would say there, you know, regulators are are absolutely needed in this industry. A lot of folks will, will want to believe that, oh, you know, cryptocurrency should be a way of transacting without uh, regulatory oversight or involvement. I, I think that's a complete fallacy. I agree. Um, I agree. You know, regulators are extremely important. So when I first got into this with Ripple directly, and I've gotten asked that question, how do you get a bank to sign up for blockchain? <laughs> You're not getting a bank to sign up for blockchain. You're getting a bank to sign up for something that is going to help solve problems that they have. It doesn't matter if it's blockchain, Mm, right? It matters that it solves a problem. Now, luckily for us, blockchain solves a lot of problems. And it's the same thing with regulators. So my experience with regulators, and this is held true, you know, now with my work with Velo Labs, when you're able to show a bank and a regulator, when you're able to show a regulator 
the, you know, the problems that are going to be solved by this technology, right? That's what they want to see. So, and it makes the conversation with regulators so much smoother. The fact that you're willing to have those conversations, the fact that you understand what regulatory compliance needs are and that you're able to readily address those needs. You're able to show how you're going to make areas of improvement for the industry that that regulator has oversight for um, is extremely important. You know, that's what we do at, um, at Vela Labs, right? We're very closely tied to regulatory requirements. We, you know, we ensure that as we build out technology, that um, regu- you know, regulatory compliance, regulatory needs, not just for one jurisdiction, but for multiple jurisdictions are met and allowed for. And we also build sensibility so that as regulations, as, re- as new regulations come out, we are able to, to support those things. Man, that's that's great. It is. And, and, you know, I think, you know, you want you want to have the regulator on your side. Right. We cannot move forward as an industry if we aren't doing these things. So while Villa Lab does it and embraces um, those relationships with regulators, the industry needs to do that. The more resistance and you know, the more evasion towards regulators, it just takes longer to reach that point of mass adoption and mass utilization that I think everyone in the blockchain industry you know, wants to see. And what I see as an advantage for a lot of the developers that are building today on the Stellar blockchain on various projects is when you have an organization like yourselves who are making that effort, opening those doors, it makes it so much easier for the next developer that has a project on Stellar to walk through those doors because now there's familiarity. So uh, I know on behalf of a lot of the developers and, uh, and entrepreneurs on the Stellar community, uh, I know that they appreciate you guys shining a good light on Stellar. Um, and not just Stellar, but I think the entire blockchain community, because it's showing what we can do. It shows we're growing up a little bit. <laughs> so it's definitely appreciated. Definitely. I mean, you know, we want to be seen as as a leader in this industry. And, you know, if you want to be seen as a leader, you have to lead by example. Absolutely. So as we get close to wrapping everything up, let's say, what are you able to share as far as the rollout phase for, for the Velo ecosystem? Uh, you know, how, how soon are we for a, a 2020 Q4 launch? Is that is anything possible? What, what do you think? What can you share? Yeah, no, I, I love the question. That's a great question. And, and look, we are, we are very close and we're on track. You know, that is possible. I can't confirm. I can't confirm that. I don't want to take, you know, I don't want to take the, uh, you know, the wind out of anybody's uh, out of anybody's sails um, on this or all the sure. excitement. But 2020 Q4 launch, I will say we were we are very close. We are on track. Definitely keep an eye out. Um, you know, keep an eye out on our website, Twitter, Medium, you know, and, and Medium accounts. Uh, there'll be a lot of announcements coming up. And I, by the way, you, you mentioned the Medium. Whoever's behind the Medium account, shout out to them. You know, I've been following and reading and, and enjoying those posts and sharing them. So. Uh, you got a, like I said, you got a real good crew out there. We appreciate you guys. You got a really good team, really good team. Thanks. I'll, I'll definitely make sure to share that with them. I'm sure they're listening, um, but I'll, if, if they're not, I'll make sure that they hear that. I'll be honest with you. I could talk to you for hours, Mike, but I know we got to wrap things up. I want to thank you so much for joining me with, on behalf of Public Node and the Stellar family community. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, and I know that there's, there's probably folks that, despite the fact that we've been on here for over an hour, are going to say that there's probably maybe a question or two that they wanted to get in. 
So I'm curious. I mean, would you be open to doing maybe a, an AMA in a couple of weeks so that way we can open up to the, the seller community? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I've, I've enjoyed um, the conversation. And likewise, I, I could sit here all day and, and, and talk with you and I'd be and I'd be quite happy to do it. I don't know you know, if my boss or anybody else is going to be happy that I'm spending the whole day talking, but uh, I'm certainly enjoying <laughs> this. So I'd be I'd be more than happy you know, to come back for an AMA. Definitely. Man, that's awesome. Well, you heard it. Uh, we got them recorded, guys. We are going to try to see if we can plan something out in the very near future. Once again, Mike Cohen's. This is Sam Connor. Hey, I enjoyed it. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. I appreciate it and, and look forward to speaking again really soon.